Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Samsara, a documentary filmed in 25 countries, takes you to sacred grounds, disaster zones, and natural wonders. It's now available on demand. And from Academy Award nominee Roman Coppola, Charles Swan stars Charlie Sheen, Bill Murray, and Patricia Arquette, and is available on demand before it hits theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The art house is now in your house. This podcast is also brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And today we're going to explore the subdued, emotionally generous, and naturalistic portrait of working class Texas life that is William Friedkin's Killer Joe. Later, we'll bring you cue shots, our look at some of the current offerings on various streaming and VOD sites, all centered around a common theme. Inspired by Killer Joe, we thought we'd take a look at some other movies in which characters perform sex acts on food. But though there are more films out there featuring that than you might think, our attempt at taking on that topic ended up just being a half hour of us giggling uncomfortably and coming up with terrible euphemisms. So instead, we're going to take a look at some movies set in Texas. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight one title that's new on VOD and give you a rundown of a few other notable films new on demand on cable. Matt, what's our first pick this week? Well, speaking of movies about sexual assault that feature fast food, Mm. our first pick is a very provocative movie entitled Compliance. It's directed by Craig Zobel, and it is a real-life story, or at least a story based on a real-life case of this assault that took place at a fast food restaurant, and it stars a a really nice cast, including Anne Dowd, who did not get nominated for an Academy Award, but I think should have been, and actually, it's kind of sad. She... She actually put her own money, thousands of dollars, into like her own campaign, and it's a shame she didn't get nominated. She's really fantastic as the manager of this fast food restaurant, and really one of the main perpetrators, or at least the enablers of this horrific act that took place in this fast food restaurant. Uh, Dreama Walker from – what's the show she's on? Uh, don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23. Thank you. She's one of the stars of that show. She is the main victim of the uh, the crime in this case. She is – 
accused of basically stealing from one of the customers in this fast food restaurant by a, an unseen person on the phone. He calls the fast food restaurant, claims to be a police officer, and he asks Ann Dowd's character to help in his investigation until he can get there. This is Officer Daniels with the police department. I have a woman here saying one of your employees took money out of her purse. You have a young lady who works at the register, about 19 years old, blonde. Becky, come with me. I swear I didn't take anything. I don't know what's going on here. I'm just trying to do my job. Calm down for me, okay? You don't realize what kind of trouble you're in. We need to find the money, but I'll need your help till I can get down there. We really have two choices here. He's saying he'll have to take you to jail. Or what we could do is have you strip search her right now. I could strip search you here. What? No. No. When you read what happened in the real case, it's kind of horrifying how close to the real event Craig Zobel stayed. And this movie, which premiered last year at the Sundance Film Festival has been one of the most kind of talked about divisive movies. I know I really liked it. Did you enjoy it, Alison? I did. Maybe it enjoy is Enjoy the right is word. a tough word to use with it, but it definitely found it fascinating and provocative. Yes, and very much so. Upsetting in in in, in all the right ways, you know. Yes, yes. Um, but people walked out of the first screening. Supposedly, the the first Q and A at Sundance was really heated with people. Uh, you know, making accusations and pointing fingers mm-hmm. and storming out and how could you do this and all that sort of thing. So it is an upsetting movie. It's a very provocative movie. It's a button-pushing movie, deliberately so. So you should know that going in. But it is a very, very interesting movie. And I think it's more than just the shock value. You know, I think Craig Zobel is a, is a really talented uh, up-and-coming director. He made a, a very interesting movie from a few years ago called The Great World of Sound which had some similarities in terms of the content. And uh, uh, one actor in common, this uh, great actor, Pat Healy, who is in this film and was in that film. And I think he has a really good skill, not only at directing actors, but like casting actors. And there's a lot of great little parts in this fast food restaurant. And I think one of the reasons the movie works is everyone in that restaurant, they seem like real people. And we don't get to see a lot of them, like a lot of time. Um, But just they make these indelible impressions. The guy who works at the cash register and is kind of this like dopey kind of teen jock character, but has this sort of core humanity to him. And and, and the manager especially just just seems all too chillingly real, I think. And a lot of that, I think, uh, credit belongs to uh, Craig Zobel. So that's Compliance. It's now playing on VOD. And before we move on to the rest of our on-demand picks this episode. Allison, we actually have something to announce. Something exciting. Something very exciting that actually connects in a very direct way to compliance, and that is what we are doing, our our very first ever live podcast, Film Spotting SVU Live! Exclamation point. Uh, Mark your calendars if you're in the New York area. It's going to be Saturday, February 23rd at uh, Videology in Williamsburg. It's a cool video store and screening space. We're going to have a lot of stuff going on. We're going to have a podcast. We're going to try to do like a full podcast. We're going to do a screening of compliance. And then we're going to have a Q&A with director Craig Zobel. He will not be in attendance. He'll be on Skype. We'll be talking to him via Skype. I hope no one will storm out. Uh, but they'll <laughs> oh, be able, I hope someone you will hope storm, people out. storm out. Yes. Well, uh, if you don't storm out, you'll be able to ask 
Craig Zobel some questions over Skype. Uh, we're thinking of having some contests, some prizes. I, I'm going to spring this on you, Allison. It's actually the day before the Oscars. Ooh. So maybe we can do one of our ill-advised Oscar contests. I think we should do that. Where we try to predict oh, the winners. We'll have to come up with some stakes, though. Yeah, and the loser has to do something horrible. Uh-huh. A few years ago, we did one of these ill-advised Oscar contests, and I had to drink an entire bowl of cheese dip, of queso <laughs> dip, and almost died. Yeah, so, I really enjoyed watching that. Oh, <laughs> and I really did not enjoy doing it, which is why I will win this year. But... um. So, yes, that's going to be Saturday, February 23rd. We'll have more details about tickets and, like, the exact time on our next episode. But if you are in the New York area, we would love to see you. It's going to be a lot of fun. And then it's going to be very challenging. We'll do the fun stuff first. We'll have the podcast before compliance because it is a kind of a freaky, intense movie. It'd be weird to be, like, yes. yucking it up after we watch <laughs> it. So we'll, we'll have some fun first. Then we'll watch the movie. Then we will uh, talk to Craig Zobel. And uh, that's Saturday, February 23rd at Videology in Williamsburg. If you want uh, more info, it's not up there yet, but their website is videology.info. So we hope to see you there. Allison, what's our other VOD picks this Uh, week? Two more quick picks for you. They're both Sundance 2012 titles since the next iteration of the festival is starting this week, I believe. So the first is Detropia, which is a documentary from Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady, who are documentary team, probably best known for Jesus Camp. Um, This is a documentary about the city of Detroit, uh, a city that, you know, has gone through tough times, many tough times recently, and has become, as they put it, emblematic of the collapse of the U.S. manufacturing base. But it's this really beautifully made and kind of poetically made look at the city, which is, you know, this kind of grand... Uh, like, uh, you know, remnant of what used to be uh, in terms of a city that no longer has the the industry that it used to. So uh, beautifully made, but not, you know, kind of sad as well. It's uh, on VOD on Tuesday, January 15th. The other film is a scripted film. It is The End of Love, which is a drama uh, directed by and starring Mark Webber, who's an actor you may remember from Storytelling or Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. He's been acting for a long time. Uh, this is a drama about uh, he plays a young father who is looking after his infant son, his toddler son, um, following the death of the boy's mother. And this is how personal this is. Uh, Weber's own son plays the son in the movie. So uh, definitely a very intimate and close look at the relationship between a young father and a son that is on demand ahead of its premiere in theaters on Monday, January 21st. Allison, we're delighted to have Audible back as a sponsor of SVU this week. And Audible is the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. And for our listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. Allison, do you have a recommendation, uh, one possible free title people might want to check out this week? Well, you know, since we're talking about a William Friedkin movie, Mm -hmm. uh, who, by the way, has a memoir coming out in April called The Friedkin Connection. Ooh. I know. That's going to be good. Uh, I thought that uh, we'd point out that the book that served as source material for what's arguably his best-known film, The Exorcist, uh, is on Audible. It is The Exorcist 40th Anniversary Edition, and it's read by William Peter Blatty, who is the author of what was originally a 
1971 novel. What's kind of interesting about this 40th anniversary edition is that he's done basically a director's cut. He's had done some revisions, added mm. a little new material. Uh, as he explained, the first time around, he couldn't afford to do a second draft of the novel, he said, in like introducing it. So this is his, like he went back and did revisions, having had four decades to think about it. He uh, added, I think, like a, like a small new character, you know, kind of uh, cleaned it up a bit. So Sounds like he's a big fan of George Lucas, right? I know. There's a little bit of that there, um, but hopefully it's all improvement. He says that this is the version I would like to be remembered for. So if you've always thought that The Exorcist is a frightening movie, and I mean, if you don't, then who are you? Because it's a terrifying movie. Then uh, this might be an interesting way to look at the novel. It's especially when it's read by the author, who's apparently does a particularly good job of reading it. So uh, that is The Exorcist 40th Anniversary Edition. Okay, so if you would like The Exorcist 40th Anniversary Edition or another free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. That's audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. All right, let's get into cue shots. And when you guys decided on Killer Joe as our listener's choice, Alistair and I were debating what options we actually... Speaking of William Friedkin, we kind of wanted to do a Friedkin podcast, and I think that would have been interesting. Not enough movies available uh, for streaming, especially. So we, we decided to scuttle that for the time being. And then we were talking about, you know, crime movies. We were talking about Southern movies. And I thought Southern movies could be interesting, but maybe a little too broad. So I was like, well, what about Texas movies? Because that seemed more specific. And that's what we decided on. And then I did the research, and I was like, actually, that's almost too broad, too, because there are so many movies and different kinds of movies about different parts of Texas. You know, it's such a big state and has so many different kind of points of view about it that perhaps it was it was an ill-advised choice anyway. <laughs> but we got some great movies out of it, I suppose. That's the good part. So uh, I don't know if there's anything else we want to say in a general sense, or should I, we just dive right in? Uh, there was one thing I wanted okay. to mention. I, I did, it, unfortunately not on demand, but one of the kind of uh, more surprising Texas movies I ever saw, incidentally, I think, at South by Southwest, mm. was The Whole Shooting Match by Eagle Pinnell, who was an indie, indie like I, I think, Austin-area mostly filmmaker, okay. who they restored that film. And uh, it's really worth looking for. I think it's only on it's it's on DVD, but in terms of just being an indie film, and I think it was made in the seventies, is really interesting. Like it's a, it's warm, funny, and really not like anything else I'd seen, especially from that era in Texas. So it's pretty neat, it's worth a look. Okay, uh, I would just want to mention. I don't think. Do you have any westerns on your list, Allison? I have one. You have one. Okay, because yeah. I don't have any westerns, and I I have to admit I feel kind of bad about that. Just. Because that's one of the things, like, when you say, okay, well, Texas on screen, what do you think of? I mean, one of the things that instantly comes to mind is a Western. You know, there's so many great Westerns set in Texas. And I just want to mention very briefly, because I know you're not going to mention these. Uh, if you've ever heard of Roy Rogers, the not just for fast food, but before he was a fast food icon, he was a film icon and a TV icon and a singing cowboy. There are a ton of Roy Rogers movies available on Netflix, including a lot with the word Texas in the title, including <laughs> Rainbow Over Texas, Eyes of Texas, Song of Texas, Cowboys from Texas, and The Yellow Rose of Texas. So uh, I, I actually watched a little bit of some of them, and they're actually pretty fun. I mean, if you want a singing cowboy movie, you're not going to do much better than a Roy Rogers. So I actually would recommend maybe just doing a quick search for Roy Rogers. You're going to see a lot of movies about Texas. You're going to see a lot of movies that don't have Texas in the title necessarily. But that might be something to take a look at because it's not, not somebody that gets a lot of 
talk and conversation. And I have a feeling most people listening will have never seen a Roy Rogers movie. So maybe something to check out. You want to start, Allison? What's your first uh, Texas movie? My first Texas movie. And I feel like my picks kind of either went to like big and epic Texas movies or those are the, the two poles, right? And then you have like very kind of like grimy, like life is hard in Texas movies. Right. And this is probably on the life is hard in Texas movies. Okay. It's Into the Abyss, uh, directed by Werner Herzog, 2011 film documentary. And uh, one I thought was really terrific. It's um, as an all topic, Herzog is always able to discover and and seemingly without forcing it, you know, affirmations of his particular worldview. And he manages to do that in what's a tale of a triple homicide that happened in Conroe, Texas, and uh, the two young men who were convicted of it, one of whom at the start of the film is on death row, waiting to be executed, and the other is uh, has gotten, I think, like life, basically. The crime's horrible, but they were teenagers, and they basically went to steal a car uh, belonging to the mother of a friend, and ended up killing that friend, killing the mother, and then I, think, I forget who else they killed, but like it was this completely unnecessary, terrible thing. In exploring this crime and kind of exploring the town, Herzog just finds these incredible interviews that reveal this this town as a place that's just like in which like imprisonment and violence and like untimely death are just mat- like part of all of these part of the fabric of the life there somehow. I think what like there's so many memorable moments. Like there's one point where the father of one of the boys who has been in jail most of his life um the what the they have christmas dinner together behind bars and they're like the, the guy is kind of like you know isn't this great dad and the father is is he's like he says i think i'm trash and i wish i could serve his time for him and there are a lot of moments like that that are just kind of beautiful and heartbreaking but also you, you know it's a story of two people having christmas dinner in prison uh and maybe the best interview is one that is very incidentally related to the film it's a friend who has not that much to do with the main story and who was supposed to talk about you know how he knew one of the guys and just gives like this a spiel of amazing stories including about how he didn't learn to read until he was an adult about how he uh got stabbed in the chest with a screwdriver and then went to work right afterwards. Uh, it's kind of amazing. So she led him in the house to use the telephone, and while he was doing that, Michael Perry stepped out of the laundry room, and that's when he shot her. This was the vehicle that Michael Perry and Jason Burkett was after. Three people died for this car. I, I think that it feels both like a side of small town, kind of like or smallish town, Texas, that you don't get to, that's, that's very rarely seen on any screen, but also it's a very Herzog movie at the same time. And that it's done so well. Uh, you know, there is this kind of great depth to it in terms of it, in what could have been basically a true crime story. That's Into the Abyss. It's available streaming on Netflix. All right. Well, I'm going to pair that with another documentary. I guess when you think Texas on screen, one of the things you think of is the Texas justice system and really the death penalty. You know, yeah. the the uh, the popularity, I guess, for lack of a better word, of the death penalty, which is very much the subject of my first pick, the 1988 documentary The Thin Blue Line, directed by Errol Morris, also available on Netflix. And... 
what is interesting now about this movie, which is now several decades old, is, you know, it's a famous case of this man who's wrongfully imprisoned for this crime he did not commit, you know, sentenced to, to die, basically, and he was on death row and all that sort of thing, is the movie itself became a, a huge, uh, you know, topic, and the, the guy was eventually released. He was, you know, the movie helped prove his innocence. So the movie is undeniably important, but I guess, the you know, at this point, it, you look at it and go, well... He's been been released. Actually, he passed away a few years ago, you know, of an illness. So you go, well, is it still worth watching now? And I think it is because, one, it's just this unbelievable story. I mean, just as a story, as a yarn, it's just unbelievably watchable. But then it's also just, I think, a really important look at confirmation bias. You know, this idea that this guy... Uh, just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, that he bumped into this kid who was the actual, in all, all likelihood, although he was never actually convicted of the crime, he was the guy who did this crime, but he was a 16-year-old kid, and the people who were prosecuting, investigating, looked at the 16-year-old and looked at the 28-year-old, and one of the theories put forward in the movie by one of the defense lawyers is that basically they said, well, we can't get the death penalty on a 16-year-old kid, but we can get the death penalty on a 28-year-old, so let's prosecute the 28-year-old. And and there are these unbelievable, for I guess Freudian slips, the, that these cops are saying, things that they're saying in this movie that your jaw just drops, you know, like... Things like uh, he he almost overacted his innocence, you know, which is absurd because the guy was innocent. He wasn't acting innocent. He was innocent. But they just they they had made their minds up. This guy was guilty. So he must be acting innocent, you know, or there's another uh, incredible line of dialogue where he says one of the other cops says we didn't want him to tell us something he thought. We wanted him to tell us what we knew. Being nosy, I just stared. I was leaving the plush pub one night, driving a, a, a 1977 Cadillac, heading west on Hampton. I noticed an officer had two individuals pulled over to the curb in a, in a blue, some type of vehicle. It was, a, it, was, it was a blue, it was a blue, I think, it was a blue Ford. It was a blue something. I think even though, you know, in a certain sense, the movie did its job many years ago, I think it's a really incredible documentary still and definitely worth watching. And uh, as a Texas movie, I think it's a good one for that, you know, for the reasons we've discussed. There's also a very kind of potent line from Randall Adams, the guy who was, you know, wrongfully uh, convicted of the crime. He says, if there ever was a hell on earth, it's Dallas County. So with (laughs) with respect and apologies to the people of Dallas. Uh, I think it fits very nicely in this topic. So that's The Thin Blue Line, and it is available on Netflix. Yeah, the people of Dallas do not uh, necessarily get a great representation in Killer Joe either, at least in the small group of people uh, no, who end that's, up on screen. That's true. So uh, apologies again. Yeah, maybe we blanket apologies. <laughs> on behalf of the world of film. Yeah. Um, so my next pick is a um, actually a children's film, and I think a much, like a really uncommonly enjoyable one. It is holes the 2003 film directed by andrew davis who's better better known for these action films like the fugitive and under siege it's rentable on amazon youtube and itunes um based on the book by lewis sacker uh you know who's a well-known young adult children's author and it stars shia labeouf before michael bay and steven spielberg attempted to kind of shove him down our throats as the next big blockbuster star he plays stanley yelnats the fourth 
my teenage boy, whose family has supposedly been cursed for over a hundred years. And because of this, maybe he's uh, falsely accused of stealing a pair of sneakers that was donated by a famous baseball player to a charity. And he gets sent off to a juvenile detention camp out in the middle of a dried up lake in Texas. And it's one run by Sigourney Weaver and John Voight and Tim Blake Nelson. It's definitely a a trio of troublemakers and can't be trusted. And I I think beyond just the really striking key visual of this, which is you have this like giant dried out kind of desert area. And what the boys are made to do is dig holes every day they get sent out and they dig holes and it's presented as being like good for their character right this is a they're gonna learn something they're being punished but like it's work it's good for the soul there's a a, there's a real sense of place like this kind it's like a heightened story but uh there's a real sense of basically all of these layers of history that you come to understand have to do with like why why they're digging holes, who Sigourney Weaver's character is. And uh, it brings in, I think, a kind of great side story about uh, this like outlaw bandit, about um, uh, interracial romance and about uh, basically like being a good person. And I think it manages to weave them all together in a way that's really kind of uh, lovely and very satisfying. My name is Stanley Yelnats. All my life, I seem to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. My grandpa says it's because of this 150-year-old curse. There's no curse on this family. There is on the men in this family. It's all because of your no-good, dirty, rotten, big-stealing, great-great-grandfather. Welcome to Camp Green Lake. Where's the lake? (laughs) This is Stanley. Everyone in my family names their son Stanley because it's... Yelnats backwards. Well, that's interesting. It's a really enjoyable movie. I don't think you have to be a kid to enjoy it. Uh, I think it, it's pretty well made. That is Holes. It's available for rent on Amazon, YouTube, and iTunes. All right. That's a good pick. Uh, my next movie does not pair so quite so elegantly as our last <laughs> two. And this is not a kid's movie. This is a, a film not for kids. Uh, but I don't exactly think it's quite so outrageous either. It is uh, a movie I'd never seen before, before we recorded this podcast, but uh, doing the research, trying to find some new movies that I haven't seen before that might be uh, might be worth watching. I watched this one, and I really enjoyed it. It's called The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas from 1982, mm. directed by Colin Higgins. It is available on Netflix Instant. And, uh, you know, I wasn't sure going into it. I was just kind of very curious. But But... After watching it, I do think it is kind of a great Texas movie. You know, it kind of gets at a lot of the contradictions of the place, at least as I see them as an outsider. You know, that sort of very law and order side of Texas that we already talked about with those documentaries. And also kind of that, you know, rugged individualism, kind of Western spirit. We were once our own country kind of thing where it's like the law and order on the one side, the, the wanting to follow the law and uphold the law. And on the other side, that whole sort of like, leave me alone, libertarian, I'm, I'm going to let my, uh, my own moral compass dictate what I do sort of thing. It is about a, a whorehouse, a, the chicken ranch that uh, has existed basically for decades in this little part of Texas. And this consumer advocate reporter on television, and apparently this is all based on a true story, which I did not know before I looked this up also, this uh, consumer advocate reporter who sees himself as this great uh, you know, moral voice in the community, he decides, it's, it takes it on himself to shut the chicken ranch down. That's Melvin P. Thorpe, played by Dom DeLuise, and a really wonderful comedic performance. One of the things I did like about this movie was the way that his character 
you know, without talking about it too much, they really sell him as, you know, these guys who go on television as, uh, you know, the voice of moral authority, you know, and wagging their finger at what is wrong in our society. And then behind closed doors, they're, they, these are inevitably the people that are the most screwed up and, the you know, the most weird or at least just the biggest liars. And so, well, this when we first meet this character, he's getting dressed for a TV appearance, which includes, you know, putting on like a, a, a girdle or something to kind of. Uh, hide some of his Dom DeLuise-ness and then shoving like a ball of socks down his pants. Which show did you like best, Ed? I think the one about the nuts in the chocolate bar. It's one of my favorites. Three score means 60, like the Bible says. So if it says 60 nuts on the wrapper, I want to see 60 nuts inside. And I'm talking full nuts. I'm not talking a half nut or nut bits or nut chips. We're talking a full nut. I can see that. He's talking about uh, a false advertising scam that he shut down while he's shoving a, a ball of, of, of socks down his crotch, which I thought was a, quite a, a succinct little uh, a metaphor for this character. Has some nice songs, maybe not the most memorable songs of all time. It does have Dolly Parton singing I Will Always Love You to Burt Reynolds, which is kind of good. And actually, Burt and Dolly have some lovely scenes together. And I, I like the uh, the moral of it, you know. Maybe uh, it's too much of my maybe it's it's my own confirmation bias at work here. But just this idea that this place wasn't hurting anybody. It was you know it was a, a brothel, but they these people paid their taxes. They were popular in the community. They were upstanding citizens. They were just it was just a place to uh, where hooker you could go see a hooker and and uh, there wasn't there wasn't anything dirty about it as they say. And I just kind of like that. And I like the message of the movie. Which feels almost more appropriate now or more timely now than it maybe even did back in 1982. So that's The Best Little Horror House in Texas. If I didn't mention it explicitly, it is a musical. It was a charming movie overall. I actually really enjoyed it. The Best Little Horror House in Texas. It is available on Netflix Instant. Okay, my last pick. Since we had to get a Western in here. We really did. We really did. So I thought I would pick... It's an easy pick. It's one of the greatest Westerns ever made. It's The Searchers, 1956, directed by John Ford, streaming on Amazon Instant Video. Now, I was looking up, uh, there was a, a while ago, a little while ago, they did a list of, uh, there was a discussion of the 10 greatest um, Texas, Texas movies. Yeah. I saw this online. I read yeah, it too. Yeah, including uh, our friend Tim League of uh, Al- the Alamo Draft House was one of the participants. Yes. And I thought this was interesting. Uh, John Bloom, who may be better known under the name he performs, uh, Joe Bob Briggs who is from Dallas, mm-hmm. explained this about why The Searchers was a, was a great Texas movie. Okay. He said, it's the greatest movie about Texas stubbornness. There is no reason for that family to stay there waiting for the next Indian attack. And the other thing is, why would you search? John Wayne knows that by the time he finds his girl, she will have become a Comanche. So why would you spend eight years searching? That's another Texas trick. Men never quit, even when there's no longer any point. Mm. And Which I thought was interesting. Well said. And, I, you know, I, it does seem like there is a particular I mean you know John Wayne's character Ethan Edwards in this is such an amazing complicated character and I I think that he does maybe represent this particular I don't know if it's necessarily unique to Texas but like this particular kind of frontier mentality you know he is racist. He's got very, like, these ideas about, um, you know, he, when he finally does track down Debbie, kind of one of the famous scenes, he's ready to kill her for right. being, uh, for living among the Comanche. For and, going native, and, so For to going speak. native, yeah. Uh, and yet, 
he knows all of the Comanche culture, you know, like he, right. he, uh, like moves very easily in this very multicultural world, mm-hmm. you know, between the kind of like the cantina and like all of this, like his, despite his kind of idealizing this, uh, his brother's family and civilization in this very white sense, this white frontier sense, like his world is not that, you know, that is not the world he comes from or that he's comfortable in. He's a, uh, he's a Melvin P. Thorpe. He's a, he's a hypocrite. In he a sense. is. And I, it's, there's this weird kind of divide between what he, the values he holds up versus the life he actually li- lives. Mm. I mean, that's, you know, the famous last shot he, you know, he's brought Debbie back. Um, everyone goes in the house and he, he doesn't go in the house. He walks away. There's no place for There's him no there. There's no place for him there. He, or he doesn't see any place for him mm-hmm. there. And I think that that there is something that I don't, that maybe is representative. I don't know. I don't want to put it just on Texas, but like that of this very idea of what's become Americanism you know, and the react like this idea of what it means in maybe even a Fox News sense versus the reality of what America is. I think that there's there's a very interesting tension there. It's John Wayne as Ethan Edwards who had a rare kind of courage, the courage that simply keeps on and on far beyond all reasonable endurance, never thinking of himself as martyred, never thinking of himself as brave. So we'll find him in the end, I promise you. We'll find him. Here is a story of a man, hard and relentless, tender and passionate, of people who dared to challenge a hostile land. Here is drama of great love and aching loneliness. I found him. I found Lucy. What you saw was a buck wearing Lucy's dress. I found Lucy back in the canyon. What was she? What do you want me to do, draw you a picture? Spell it out! Don't ever ask me. As long as you live, don't ever ask me more. It's set mostly in West Texas, despite it being filmed in Monument Valley. Um, and it is just a great series of giant frontier shots that are just some of the most memorable shots uh, that I think you you can find in just in memory in cinema. And it's just a great Western in general. It's one that if you haven't had a chance to see, it's really worth taking the, the time to see, um, especially for its very complicated relationship to the Native American characters, which I think, you know, has been much analyzed over the years, but is, uh, is <laughs> it could, it could lead to endless discussion. Um, so that is The Searchers. It is streaming on Amazon. All right. Well, we had to have a Western. I think we've all, and from my perspective, we also have to have a movie from one of the guys who, to me, just is, is one of the definitive Texas filmmakers, a more recent one, and that's Richard Linklater who I certainly associate with uh, Texas, specifically Austin, which I guess is a different sort of Texas. Um, but I guess if you're going to do Richard Linklater and you're going to do Austin, you might as well do the definitive Austin movie, which to me is Slacker from 1991 and is available on Netflix Instant. And what's interesting looking at it again, and I hadn't seen it in a, quite a few years, is having spent so much time now in Austin covering South by Southwest and covering Fantastic Fest and all these different things is, on the one hand... Austin doesn't look like this anymore. Austin is much more, like, urban and modern, and there's a lot more kind of going on. It just seems busier. The, the Austin of Slacker just seems much more Slacker-ish. On the other hand, this is still exactly what Austin is like, that sort of, you know, keep Austin weird vibe. And the, the fact that, like, any time I've been to Austin, I've never been in a taxi cab where the driver wasn't listening to, like, conspiracy theory radio. 
being an outsider. And I think Slacker is one of the great movies about sort of outsider-dumb and just people who don't fit in and have this weird sort of unusual perspective on things. Some of the camera work, some of the sound work, a lot of the acting, they're not exactly what you would you know call professional grade, but... Even even despite all that, the structure of it I still find so beguiling. You know, this idea of you open with this guy who's played by Richard Linklater himself. He's he's arriving in Austin on a bus. And then he takes this cab ride into the city. And on the cab ride, he just talks to the driver nonstop about this dream he's had and his theory of the universe. Man, there was this book I just read on the bus. Well, you know, it was my dream, so I guess I wrote it or something. But, uh, man, it was bizarre. It was like um, the premise for this whole book was that... Every thought you have creates its own reality. You know, it's like every choice or decision you make, the thing you choose not to do fractions off and becomes its own reality, you know, and just goes on from there forever. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, in The Wizard of Oz, when Dorothy meets the Scarecrow and they do that little dance at that crossroads and they think about going all those directions and they end up going in that one direction. I mean, all those other directions, just because they thought about it, became separate realities. I mean, they just went on from there and lived the rest of their life, you know, just, I mean, entirely different movies, but we'll never see it because, you know, we're kind of trapped in this one reality restriction type of thing, you know? Allison, I could have, right now, I could watch Conan the Barbarian, or I could watch Conan the Destroyer. Whichever one I pick, there is somewhere an alternate reality where I pick the other. Or a third reality where I watch both, because that's probably what I would really do. But once we make a decision, there are all these alternate universes, and the movie itself kind of mirrors that structure where we follow one person to the next to the next, and, and we, we, you know, we follow that Richard Linklater guy to another guy who has this weird voodoo ritual going on in his apartment, to uh, someone who walks past him who's a street performer, to a, a woman who gives him some money and then goes into a coffee shop to a guy who's espousing these crazy conspiracy theories. You know, it's almost uh, like a city symphony film that's played entirely by like street buskers. You know, it has this wonderful, unusual structure that I I just, I, every time I watch it, you kind of forget exactly the order and you just kind of love the way you just follow these people. And it really holds up as a, as a really fun film. And still, an imp- I think, a very important film in the history of independent cinema. You know, a real great example of what you can do with basically no money, basically no sets, almost no script, really. It doesn't really feel like a scripted movie in that sense. So that's Slacker, and it is available on Netflix Instant. This episode of Film Spotting SVU is also sponsored by MoviePass, a subscription service which allows you to pay a monthly fee and see a movie per day at many major theaters. You check in using an app on your smartphone and you use a membership card. It works for any new release, though it doesn't yet cover 3D or IMAX. If you're a frequent moviegoer, MoviePass is a service that could make a lot of sense for you. Rather than paying per ticket, you just pay that flat fee for the month. And that will get you an entry to one film per day. I just used my card a few days ago to go see uh, Zero Dark Thirty. To sign up, go to moviepass.com slash filmspotting and use the code filmspotting to get $10 off your first month of subscription. Well, sir, uh, instead of me kicking this off, maybe this, uh, you could tell us the questions we need to ask. It's pretty or- simple. You're going to pay me for a service that I'm going to perform. Uh-huh. You're going to give me the particulars of her schedule. Her habits. I'll act on them accordingly. I won't give you many details on my activities because the less you know, the better for everyone involved. All right. Now, I only have a couple of rules that I insist on sticking to. Insist. Okay, yeah. If you're caught, 
if you're implicated in this crime, you are not under any circumstances to reveal my identity or participation. Oh, of course. If you break this rule, you'll be killed. Well, now it's time for our listener's choice pick. You guys voted for Killer Joe, uh, directed by William Friedkin, available on iTunes and on VOD. Killer Joe is the second collaboration between director Friedkin and writer Tracy Letts. The first was the 2006 Ashley Judd, Michael Shannon film Bug, which is very good, very claustrophobic, a uh, tale of mutual delusion. That's also pretty disturbing. Definitely. Um, Just pretty disturbing? Pretty, very intensely disturbing. Yes. Uh, Let's is best known for the play August Osage County, which uh, won the Pulitzer Prize in 2008. Killer Joe was actually his first play from 1993. Uh, the film stars Emile Hirsch as small-time drug dealer Chris, who moves back in with his father Ansel, played by Thomas Hayden Church, his stepmother Sharla, played by Gina Gershon, and his childlike sister Dottie, played by Juno Temple. After getting kicked out by his mother... Uh, maybe a good thing since he's come up with a plan to kill her for her life insurance policy, which he believes is going to go to Dottie. To get this done, the family makes a plan to hire Joe, played by Matthew McConaughey. He's just your average Dallas detective who moonlights as a contract killer. They can't pay Joe up front, but they promise to pay him out of the money they'll get from the life insurance payout. Normally, he wouldn't agree to a plan like this. He's a professional, but he's smitten with Dottie and takes her on as a retainer while they wait for the payout, which, of course, does not work out smoothly as planned. Now, I was a little ambivalent about this film at the end and curious about other people's take on it because it was a very divisive film. Uh, I know there are some people who really liked it. It mm-hmm. ended up on some top, top 10 lists. Mm-hmm. Other people loathed it. Okay. So um, I thought one interesting read on it was that it was basically your classic noir structure, almost like a double indemnity type setup, filtered through these really exaggerated and I don't really know. How, it's white trash stereotypes, I would say. Uh, with McConaughey playing this perfectly gentlemanly Texan psychopath. Um, so, Matt, I wanted to know, what did you think about how these, her- these like how heightened these characters are on, particularly Ansel, Charlotte, and Chris, who are really just hot messes? Uh, you know, the first time we're introduced to Charlotte, it's by way of her bare crotch. <laughs> I like that you asked the question and then just drop bear crotch in there, almost the way the movie drops the bear exactly. crotch in there by introducing the woman, not just bear crotch first, but like from like the chest down. So you can't even really, I don't think you see her face at first. No. You just see, it's just like a face full of crotch. Yeah. Well, they are certainly trashy and the movie doesn't exactly paint them in the most flattering light. I felt that by the end of the movie, sort of what you were getting was a very cynical portrait, not necessarily of white trash, but of America. There's sort of this very disturbing, very deranged dinner scene at the end of the movie. And it's almost like the craziest nuclear family you've ever seen, you know, (laughs) where there's like dad is kind of serving everyone and ordering people around the table. And what are they eating? They're eating Kentucky Fried Chicken and there's side dishes and everyone's, you know, handing everything out. And because of these really disturbing things that have happened a few minutes earlier, everyone is kind of shell-shocked. And it's just like this, it's like the most horrifying vision of the American family life that you've really ever seen. It's really kind of disturbing and shocking. And so at a certain point, that's what I kind of realized, at least Tracy Letts and William Friedkin were going for, whether you think they succeeded. That's what I felt they were trying to do, is not so much make a movie about white trash, but make a movie about like sort of the intense sickness of all Americans, that this is almost like the ultimate American family and that we're all kind of disgusting and dumb and 
fast food laden and, and prone to despicable acts and, and cruelty and inhumanity and sexual sadism and all these sorts of things. I'm guessing from the way you suggested in your intro, you're not necessarily buying that, though. I don't know that I don't buy it, but I don't know that I think it's particularly that Successful. sharp a point. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I think that to just be like, look at how disgusting and squalid and like self-obsessed and, you know, selfish all these people are. I I, I feel like if there you're going for a kind of satire on America in mm-hmm. that larger sense that I would kind of want it to be a little more exact, okay. I think. And I, I think that just because particularly the main family are so contemptible, like deliberately made to be very contemptible and just awful. Um, I wasn't really sure if we were just invited, if we were, if we were meant to just be invited to just wish the destruction of this, like just to watch these people implode or if we were, particularly in the character of Dottie, who mm-hmm. is the innocent, right? But also kind of like the, the holy fool. She's sometimes aware of what's going on and sometimes this thing to be protected. Yes. Um, if, if we were supposed to kind of hope for any... Like her being saved uh, somehow yeah, or rescued. being saved. You know, but even then when people... Really, the only person who cares about her, who seems to care about her, is Joe... You know, in a weird way, as well, much as he buys her. I would say his, the the brother cares about her as well. But Perhaps I, for disgusting reasons. There's a very strong suggestion, you know, that he has incestuous feelings for the right. sister. But I would say he cares for her to some degree. You I don't, don't think know. so? Well, I, I mean, I feel like that was just as much about him. Like, he makes this deal yes. pretty easily, you know, and then kind of comes around to it after messing everything else up. You know, it's more, I think, this idea that he doesn't want... After it, that, he, he wants to save his sister from being sullied long after he's like she's been engaged in this relationship. Yeah, I think you know? it's a little more complicated than that. Their mm. relationship. I mean, he does. To me, he seemed to feel guilty. Yeah, and it it was to me it seemed a little more complicated. Does he love his sister? Does he love his sister? Mm-hmm. Is he? Does he feel guilty for making this unholy bargain? Uh, it does does he really care, or is he just you know interested in her himself? I thought, I thought it was a little bit more complicated than you're giving it credit for. Well, I, I don't, I mean, I will accept that there would be something like that there, but I feel like part of that, the whole fight over her in the end was just about him, like the fight between him and Joe. Okay. It was a kind of like pissing contest, right? Like there's literally a scene where they both they kind of declare like she doesn't get a say in what her destiny is. Right. And they're both ordering her to either stay or go. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, I don't know. He's either way as a hero of sorts. He's a pretty difficult one to kind of reckon with. Uh, Chris, Chris, Emil Hirsch's character. Yes. Well, I mean, but to a certain degree, isn't this? I mean, I also looked at it as this is just you know kind of a classic style film noir where just about everyone is venal and awful. I mean, you don't really necessarily root for the heroes of most film noirs. You know, I don't root for Robert Mitchum in Out of the Past. I love that movie. Charisma, right? And likability. Whereas everyone in this is like just kind of a disaster, you know? You didn't think Matthew McConaughey had charisma? Oh, I think so. T- I, I think he would have by far the most charisma. I think his is kind of the most interesting performance. Okay. But he's like the kind of outside frightening figure, right? Uh-huh. Like he's not, he's not Robert Mitchum, I don't think. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I, I, I thought there was, I thought, I also thought Thomas Hayden Church was, was strangely um, kind of compelling and likable in the movie, even though he, again, at the end of the movie does some horrible things or at least permits horrible things to happen to other characters. 
and is really just rock stupid. I just thought it was a really kind of maybe it's just that I like Thomas Hayden Church so much yeah. that I just thought there was there was just a little bit of humanity, just enough in there to make me like this character despite all the horrible things that he did. Yeah. Or at least like his performance and really kind of get a kick out of it. At the very least, I can say that I definitely laughed at his performance on quite a few occasions. He did get one of the best lines in the movie at one part where uh, Joe asks him, like, what do you think? And he says, I don't. <laughs> So he's very aware yes. of his place in life and kind of intellectually as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I, I, I thought actually I, I thought most of the performances were pretty strong, even as some of them were kind of shriller than others. But uh, McConaughey was was really enjoyable in this as a a character who seems to kind of think of himself as following certain codes and having this precision, but who's totally a psychopath as well. Like right. he has this great kind of all black cowboy outfit and he he the times when he chooses to show emotion and when he doesn't at all or seem like all messed up you know he has this great moment of joy towards the end that's so weirdly placed just in terms of the timing mm-hmm. um it just like it seems like his his even his sense of humanity is just like all off in terms of that timing well having you heard you earlier in the episode talk about john wayne and the searchers i thought there was kind of a similar vibe to his character that idea that he had he's got this you know very refined principled exterior and he as you said he is a professional and he takes things very seriously and he only works in certain ways and he has a strict rules that he follows and the way he always wears gloves you know he's clearly you know like he's he's thought this all out on the other hand he has this incredibly dark side you know this very messy side that he can barely keep under control so i thought that was an interesting sort of maybe it's not the most original depiction of that sort of law and order or cowboy character or whatever you want to say but i thought it was an effective one i thought it was a a great performance of him by mcconaughey and i thought he fit well within this very bleak kind of worldview i guess the one character that to me i think i I enjoyed the movie more than you did i think to me the character that i sort of had the most trouble with was was dotty was juno temple's character because i didn't understand her you Mm -hmm. know and as you said there there are times when she seems more aware there are times she seems less aware and it is made very explicit that this plan to kill the mother who's never seen she's not present you know the the ex-husband the ex-husband's new wife the son and the daughter all are plotting to kill the mother. And even Dottie, who's the sweet, innocent girl, is like, you know, when are we going to do it? How are we going to do it? She's on board with the plan. But I wasn't fully – I don't know if it's clear. How old is she supposed to be? There's he like, asks her. She never says. I thought there was one reference in there somewhere to her being to like 12 or 13 years old. No, she says I'm 12 and he says I'm 12 as well. Right. So. Yeah, I know. But it's not – but that's what I'm saying. It's not really – but it's not really clear to me how old she is. I mean, she, she doesn't is. go to school. Right. Not that we see. Not that we see. I don't know. I mean, I don't think that she's supposed to be a, like, I don't know, just like an adolescent. I feel like she's supposed to be in her late teens, at least. But I don't don't know. I think if there are issues of kind of consent in that way, there are more issues in that she's presented as maybe not fully mentally developed right you know right and that's where that comes in i mean i'm not really like saying i was uncomfortable with that that aspect of it per se i was just more confused like i just wanted a little more clarity on exactly who this character is and 
what she's thinking and where does she come from and how how developed mentally is she yeah i I just felt like some of that would have made the end of the movie i think more interesting when her her character kind of has this big moment at the end of the film i just felt like i would have um had a bigger stronger emotional reaction to it if i had connected with her character in some way Uh, not necessarily like oh i like her more or i dislike that character i just wanted to understand her a little better i don't know that the movie really fully makes me understand her yeah i felt like she was kind of almost like a flannery o'connor figure like there's this uh, kind of classic southern gothic quality to her i feel Mm. like as the as childlike woman who uh you know is this attractive quantity in that way because she's so unspoiled but is also this you know is vulnerable and is to be protected or maybe just to be bargained off. I, mm. I thought there was a little bit of that to her, but yeah, I, I'm, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I, I feel pretty mixed on this movie. It wasn't one that I, I enjoyed thoroughly, but mm. I, I did like McConaughey's performance. I think that maybe I wanted to enjoy it more for its outrageousness. And I, I didn't really. And why, why do you think that is? I don't know. I just, I felt like it was maybe like it was turned up too loud somehow. Too over the top, too shrill. Yeah. And also I felt like it was inviting too much contempt for For the characters characters on screen, like in a too easy way. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you say that because it did remind me in some ways of, you know, like a Coen Brothers movie, certainly like Blood Simple in some ways. And of course, that's the classic complaint about their movies is that they're, you know, laughing at their characters. They're inviting you to look down on their characters. And it sounds like you sort of felt like the, this movie, you, you want to kind of level that criticism against this movie to some degree, right? Yeah. I, or I just like, I felt like it made them such broad targets that mm. it was, that was a little too easy a position to take. I guess we really have to, before we wrap it up, we got to at least discuss <laughs> the end. I mean, we haven't even talked about, you know, sort of the big... What's the word I want to use, Allison? I don't, I don't know. The know. deeply fried scene? <laughs> uh, there is an infamous... Uh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. There, I won't say what. But there's a scene, the end of the movie involves a sort of disturbing sexual act that involves, in some way, the use of what is called K-Fry-C, perhaps to avoid a lawsuit from... <laughs> I'm sure Kentucky Fried Chicken did not sign up for product placement. No, there, I don't yeah. think they paid for the product placement, although it's an effective one in this case. Um, yeah, what, I mean, we haven't... I guess it's interesting that we've gone 15 minutes or so talking about this movie without mentioning the big thing that became sort of a lightning rod to the extent that there was one. Were you uh, were you offended by it? Were you outraged? Were you What was your reaction to it? I wasn't offended by it, but I think that it does to go to that like if this is like it's skewering of like America and particularly this like type of American culture, it's pretty it's a pretty broad metaphor. Yeah, you know. Um and I think like in terms of like that any satirical power was a little lost on me because of that. Uh, what did, did you think of it? It was a little, to me, it was a little much. It was a little, uh, it was a little over the top for me. I mean, for, uh, <laughs> a little I over the top. Just a little, just a tiny bit. I mean, I, I wasn't really uh, outraged or offended or anything like that. But I wasn't, I didn't exactly feel like I was seeing some brilliant uh, statement either. And I don't know that it, I mean, the explicitness, I'm not sure if it really was justified. Yeah, I just feel like it goes on forever. And that, (laughs) so to speak. So to speak. Uh, And 
it is the one of the most indelible images, if not the most indelible image. Well, that's true. In the movie, that is true. To the point where the poster was of a like Kentucky Fried State of Texas. <laughs> yeah, it was like a chicken nugget in the shape yeah. of the State of Texas. Yeah. But I don't think it's actually that, I guess it's not that clever an image for me. I don't think that it's actually that resonant an image. Yeah. And other like, than it's for its shock value. And as I was saying, I feel like the stuff that happens after it felt to me more smart and more powerful. And I felt like I got the point there more than I did in this sort of very intense sexual scene. Although perhaps uh, the argument, the counter argument there would be, well, you wouldn't get that if that scene wasn't so disturbing and intense, then the stuff that happens afterwards wouldn't hit you in quite the same way and i don't know maybe that maybe they have a point i I guess i i I thought it was interesting worth seeing i did laugh a few times i think it's got some really i think it's got some really nice performances mcconaughey certainly number one but i i thought thomas hayden church was great as well so i I would certainly say it's worth seeing it's certainly you know i don't regret not seeing it in time to make my top 10 list or anything like that it wouldn't same here yeah yeah. it wouldn't have made my my you know top 10 films of 2012 or anything like that but i'm glad i saw it i i certainly uh got some stuff out of it i'd say it's worth seeing yeah i i mm, don't like it as much as you do but i would say that if if you were to pick between these two bug uh, would be the one if the of the friedkin let's collaborations you prefer that i would definitely prefer bug yeah this one as horrible as that is to say is probably an easier sit though which is so terrifying. <laughs> Bug is a little more psychologically fraught, definitely. Yeah. And I could feel like, I feel like I could almost watch this movie again, whereas I wouldn't. I, you'll never get me to watch Bug again. I don't think. It'd be very, very. <laughs> Which difficult. may be an endorsement for some. That's perhaps, a, a perhaps it statement. would. Exactly. That's true. It depends on what you're in the mood to see. Well, this is Killer Joe, and it is available now on VOD and iTunes. <laughs> Before we move on to Behind the Eight Ball, we have a prize to give away. We have another prize. Uh, We know, actually, that we have not yet mailed the prize that we gave away uh, last time we did this. But it will happen. Scout's honor. It will happen. Uh, In the meantime, we have... Uh, a new prize that we're going to give away via the Resurrected Keyword Game, which is something we used to do on the old IFC News podcast. How it works is uh, we pick a film that is related to the topic we talked about today, and we pick out five terms from that film's uh, IMDb keyword page. So they have to do with the film. You have to use those clues to guess which one it is, and then you email us, and we will randomly pick a winner. Uh, Matt, do you want to tell us about the prize? Okay, this week's prize is the new Criterion Blu-ray of Following, Christopher Nolan's first film. This was uh, donated to us to give away as a prize by the lovely people of IFC Films. And uh, it's the brand new uh, Blu-ray edition, spine number 638. You get a commentary from Christopher Nolan, a new interview, a chronological edit of the film, lots of cool stuff. It is available now if you want to buy a copy, but for one lucky winner, we have one free Blu-ray copy. If you know the movie that belongs to these IMDb plot keywords, Allison. Small town. Racism. Based on book. What happened to epilogue. And locker room. Mm, what could it be? What could it be? If you think you know, email us at svu at filmspottingsvu.com. Your entry must be received by Monday, January 21st at noon, and we'll announce the winner on our next episode. Good luck, everyone. 
Now it's time for Behind the Eight Ball, in which we give you a rapid-fire countdown of three picks that are new to streaming, two that are expiring soon, and one pick chosen blindly by number from our Netflix queues. Matt, you're up first. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, three new films. Okay, I'm going to start with Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol from 2012, the latest and perhaps greatest film in the surprisingly long-running and surprisingly high-quality Mission Impossible film series. In go-to-call, as the kids call it, Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt is yet again betrayed and hung out to dry by the rest of the impossible mission force and must save the blah-blah from the clutches of the etc. while retrieving the who-gives-a-crap while dangling off the awesomely tall Burj Khalifa in Dubai. Uh, Go-to-call's awesome creative and financial success gave director Brad Bird a flawless victory in the Mortal Kombat battle for live-action Pixar director (laughs) supremacy over John Carter's Andrew Stanton. That is Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Also available on Netflix, The Untouchables from 1987, directed by Brian De Palma and written by David Mamet, starring Kevin Costner, Robert De Niro, Andy Garcia, and in his Academy Award-winning performance, Sean Connery. It's the story of G-Man Elliot Ness and his attempts to bring down Chicago mob boss Al Capone. And I will suggest this as smart alternative viewing to Gangster Squad. Skip that. See The Untouchables again or perhaps for the first time. And finally, uh... Everything or Nothing, the untold story of James Bond 007. Speaking of Sean Connery, although he doesn't appear uh, in new interviews, this authorized documentary from the creators of the long-running James Bond spy franchise is, contrary to its title, not quite an exhaustive look at the James Bond mythos. It's not exactly an ultra-fluffy, back-slapping victory lap either, though. It's just over 90 minutes. It can't quite be comprehensive, but it does have some interesting commentary from just about every actor but Connery who's played the role, including George Lazenby, on his epically dumb decision to hang up the iconic martini and tuxedo combo after just one film because, as he thought, 007 would not be relevant in the 1970s. Whoopsie. <laughs> so that's Everything or Nothing available on Netflix. Okay, two expiring titles. Uh, expiring on January 24th is the documentary Hell and Back Again, one of the Academy Award nominees for Best Documentary last year, actually. It's a very well-shot film. It follows a U.S. Marine during and after his tour of duty in Afghanistan. If the field of battle in the Middle East sounds intimidating, just wait until you see what it's like to navigate Walmart. In a wheelchair on a busy Sunday. That is crazy stuff. So that's Helen back again, expiring on January 24th. Expiring on January 25th is Enter the Void. It's your last chance to find out whether you have epilepsy by subjecting yourself to Gaspar Noe's druggy hyper-psychedelic journey through Tokyo, life, death, and the beyond. All right, and one from your queue. You gave me number 99, which in this case is entitled Drag Strip Girl from 1994. This is actually a TV movie from a very interesting forgotten TV series on Showtime from the mid-90s called Rebel Highway, where they invited these big-name Hollywood directors to remake old exploitation movies from the American International Picture Studio. So there's episodes, or movies really, that were like uh, Runaway Daughters, directed by Joe Dante, Motorcycle Gang by John Milius, Jailbreakers by Killer Joe director William Friedkin. In this case, Drag Strip Girl is directed by Mary Lambert. Uh, our buddy Rob Sweeney found these. I don't know how he found them, but he told me about them a few months ago. So I added all of them to my Netflix instant queue. Allison, are you ready to go behind the eight ball? I'm ready. All right, let's start with three new releases. Okay, the, my first pick is The Exploding Girl, 2009 indie film that is now on Hulu. It's directed by Bradley Rust Gray. Who, he and his wife are both filmmakers, and they make very kind of intimately shot. Uh, portraits of people generally the, their films can be described as uh, this is a film starring Zoe Kazan as a young woman who is home in Brooklyn uh, from college for the summer she has epilepsy uh, just and our awareness of that kind of 
colors the story, even though most of it is just about how she breaks up with one boyfriend and tentatively starts thinking about a romance with a, a friend of hers. Uh, but it's as much as it's an imperfect film, it's got a really nice and like very kind of subtle performance from Zoe Kazan, who's really a rising star in the indie film world. It's Exploding Girl. It is on Hulu. Next, uh, My Sucky Teen Romance is now streaming on Netflix. It's the third film from Emily Hagens, who is the ripe age of 20 now. Uh, she is known for directing the 2006 independent zombie feature Pathogen at the age of 12. I don't know what you've done with your life at the age of 12. Uh, and she, this is a, a vampire comedy. This is partially funded off of Indiegogo. Had its premiere at South by Southwest. Um, Higgins has been a kind of a, st- a standard figure there at, at Fantastic Fest. And it's kind of amazing just that she's managed to get this done at so early an age and is kind of, she's, she's kind of expanding her, her ideas about filmmaking as she, she gets older. Maybe by the time she's 25, who knows what type of epic film she's going to make. That's my sucky uh. teen romance. It is streaming on Netflix. And last, wanted to get in another, another Western, uh, Hondo is, is also streaming on Netflix. Another John Wayne Western, though you won't get to see it in Warner Color 3D. You have to st- deal with standard 2D. Aw, shucks. Uh-huh. Um, stars John Wayne as a title character, who in this case is part Apache. And this film has a lot, has, has an interesting parallel to The Searchers in terms of its treatment of Native Americans, um, since the, the main character is caught between uh, this tribe and, uh, you know, the soldiers who are coming in. And it ends with a kind of more mournful uh sense that the the native american characters are being chased away their way of life is ending so that's hondo it is streaming on netflix all right and two expiring titles expiring january 26th from netflix winter's bone directed by deborah granick the film that made jennifer lawrence a star and it is really a spectacular breakout role for her now that she's you know a big movie star with Oscar prospects yet again. It's the, a really nicely made Ozark noir that is set in this um, very closed community up in the mountains. Also, it features a really good turn from John Hawks, but it just is, is like in terms of having this really tough female lead character, it's so enjoyable. Uh, it's worth checking out if you haven't yet. And expiring February 1st from Crackle is Dragon Wars. If you have uh, a taste for kind of novelty in terms of productions, which I always do, this is a 2007 film that was, at the time, Korea's largest budgeted, despite the fact that it's set in Los Angeles and stars uh, the lead of the WB show Roswell, as well as Robert Forster. Um, Actually, the director, Shim Hyung-rae, in the Korean version of the film, had ended it with this message D War and I, and that was the title it was released as D War and I will succeed in the world market without fail. So, this was like a very calculated foray into uh, making an international blockbuster. Did not really uh, make much of a mark. It was not well received, and it is not a particularly good movie, despite very extensive dragon special effects. But I, it is very odd, and I think in that way, it is worth checking out just in terms of all um, international funding and an attempt to make a foray into Hollywood filmmaking uh, from Korea. So that's Dragon Wars expiring from Crackle February 1st. All right. And one random film from your queue. All right. uh, You picked number 38, which is Penny Serenade. 1941 film starring uh, Irene Dunn and Cary Grant as a love-struck married couple who keep trying to have a child. 
and then they keep losing the child. Uh, they uh, there's a pregnancy that doesn't work out, and then they try and adopt, and it's the tearjerker uh, directed by George Stevens. I have no idea why this is on my queue. I do not know what led me to choose it, but it is there. It's a classic. You know what? What more reason do you need than that? I don't know. I just I don't think Harry it's one Grant. that I would have normally. I love Cary Grant, but I, mean, I don't know done. that seeing a couple. Um, lose children again and again that doesn't ways. sound like a, sounds like um something a fun that I saturday be, night uh, for you not necessarily but so that's my number 38 penny serenade it is on netflix okay well it's time to go through our listeners choice options for our next episode and this week basically the theme is already chosen and you're just gonna have to decide which of these three movies you want to be the anchor of that theme you may have heard a few weeks ago, or maybe a month or two now that we're recording this, uh, Netflix signed a new deal with Disney to premiere some of their movies and also to have a lot of their back catalog available on Netflix Instant. So they have already added a bunch of Disney movies, and we thought that might be a good reason to do a Disney-themed SVU podcast. So we've got three different animated Disney films that are all available on Netflix Watch instantly, and we're going to have you guys choose which of the three is our Listener's Choice Review next time. Allison, what's the first option? The first option is Dumbo, which is the 1941 film about the elephant with large ears who can fly, of course. Uh, This was the fourth animated feature in the Walt Disney Animated Classic series, so it's very early on in this, you know, kind of landmark animated series Mm -hmm. of films. Okay, option number two is Alice in Wonderland from 1951. This is the 13th Walt Disney animated classic and uh, definitely one of the most famous, one of the most beloved, based on the classic Lewis Carroll novel. Uh, Remade many times, remade most recently as a hugely successful live-action film. This specifically, though, is the animated Disney version we're talking about here, not the Tim Burton film. This is the 1951 animated Alice in Wonderland. That's option number two. And the final option, we wanted to do one that was a little closer to uh, the present day, since the brand has changed a lot, has tried to keep up, has been challenged by Pixar Mm -hmm. as well, and other animated, uh, computer animation particularly. So we decided we pick Treasure Planet, which is not a film I've seen. Have you seen this? Uh, I haven't seen it either, although I've been told by people that have seen it that it's kind of an underrated, you know, like it was, was not successful, it was a bit of a flop, definitely did not help the life of 2D animation. But supposedly it's kind of good. So it's the 43rd animated feature (laughs) in the Walt Disney Animated Classic series. It was released in 2002 as a sci-fi take on Treasure Island, the Robert Louis Stevenson uh, novel. And it uses uh, hand-drawn 2D as well as 3D computer animation. And it was, I think it was one of a few attempts by Disney to appeal to a kind of more male-skewing audience, I think. They, they made a few films where they're, they're trying to figure out the secret of the non-princess adoring crowd. Uh, I don't know if they ever really lock that down, but Treasure Planet is our third pick. Okay, so which of those three Disney movies should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, January 21st at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on our Twitter account, at filmspottingsvu, and you'll have all that week to watch the film. And then join us for our conversation, which will be on our next episode on Tuesday, January 29th. 
Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the episode. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. And we'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from SVU listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>